This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney and I will be your charming host today as we explore a brand new topic on the show. Now today's topic is one that was inspired by some recent events about a week or week and a half ago now I believe, Uh, but it's also one of particular interest to me and some of my research that I do as uh, a PhD candidate. And that's because we're going to be talking about terrorism. Now, the topic we're dealing with in the news media is about a week or a week and a half ago now, uh, the infamous terrorist group known as ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State or Daesh, they recently lost their final city that they held claim over. So if you haven't been following them recently, they've been losing a lot of territory in Syria in particular. And they recently had been pushed back to this one city, a city by the name of Bagus, or Bagaus. I'm not 100% sure how you pronounce that. It's B-A-G-H-O-U-Z, Bagus. But this was the final territory that they really controlled. They had kind of a tent city set up, and they they held uh, thousands of people in this kind of Syrian enclave. But just in the last week or so, I believe it was the 23rd or 24th, something like that, Kurdish-backed forces moved into the area and thousands of people surrendered, including something like 5,000 ISIS fighters. This was the last stronghold that ISIS held in the entire region. I I should mention before we get too far, that does not mean they've been defeated. I know Trump has said that. Uh, It's not true. They still exist, but the way they exist is very radically differently from how it was before. And so we'll talk about that in a minute as well. Uh, But they no longer control any real territory in Syria. They've been knocked back. And as I said, just about a week, week and a half ago, they lost their final little place of asylum and control that they had. And so in strict geographic terms, that means the Islamic State is gone. And this is actually a pretty big deal because, you know, this whole thing took place, you know, in less than five years. And at their peak, they actually held territory about the size of the U.S. state of Maine. So they had a pretty big chunk of territory that they controlled in in Syria, a little bit in Iraq as well. But you know, as of this final assault, which actually took about six weeks to complete, the Islamic State's again in geographic terms is essentially gone. This is a huge achievement for the United States, for for Syria, for the Kurdish forces, for all the allies in the region. But as I said, this does not mean they have been defeated. It won't stop the group. The group is still going to be conducting various attacks, uh, both locally, also inspiring them abroad. And so just because geographically they have been eradicated, that does not necessarily mean they're not a threat anymore. And in fact, they are still quite threatening. In some ways, we might actually talk about them as being still just as threatening as they've ever been because of their, their international appeal uh, to certain allies and things around the world. But I wanted to back up, and for this majority of the episode, we're going to do kind of a spotlight episode on who ISIS is. I feel like this is, as we are starting to see their downfall again, and from a geographic perspective, 
I think it'd be really interesting to kind of back up a little bit and talk about who ISIS is, who, who they were, what their ideology was, you know, what, what, what did they really want, and kind of where they came from. Uh, before we start that, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about their name. So we, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that there are several names that you've been, you hear them called by ISIS, ISIL, the Islamic State, Daesh. Sometimes you'll just hear it uh, as IS. And this all stems from a couple different things. So the distinction between ISIS and ISIL stems from a translation of the word Al-Sham. And that's because their formal name is the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham. And so the way you translate the word Al-Sham matters in, in how you're going to name them. So the Al-Sham is an area that kind of spans across southern Turkey, through Syria, into Egypt even, covers pretty much all of Israel. It's a pretty good chunk of territory. And so when they named themselves, they said they're controlling area in Iraq and Al-Sham, meaning, again, Turkey, Syria, Israel, all the way down into Egypt. And so this, this word al-Sham is where we get ISIS from, Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham, I-S, Iraq and al-Sham. But you'll hear some people refer to them as ISIL, I-S-I-L, and in fact, President Obama was famous for doing this. And that's because al-Sham is frequently translated as the Levant, or the Levant territories. And so you get the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Uh, you also hear it sometimes translated as as the greater Syria region, uh, also which would then convert to ISIS. But you also frequently will hear them referred to as just the Islamic State. That was kind of how they were originally known. You'll sometimes hear them referred to as Daesh. Daesh uh, is a word that is essentially a derogatory phrase for them. It's an acronym for for what they call themselves, uh, and it's an acronym in Arabic. Daesh, you'll frequently see it spelled in English, D-A-E-S-H. But interestingly, the Islamic State itself really hates being called Daesh. And so you'll frequently hear people use it in a very derogatory sense towards them. And the reason for that is because, well, first, it's so it, as I said, it's an acronym. It stands for the Arabic name of the Islamic State, uh, which I'm not going to butcher here on the air. But it basically, depending on how you kind of conjugate it in Arabic, it can mean a variety of different things that have very unsavory connotations. And in particular, it can be used to mean the word bigot of all things. And so the Islamic State has actually been reported to have threatened to cut out the tongue or even kill people who use that term to describe them. So that you'll frequently hear people on the news, radio, and things like that use the word Daesh, and they're usually using it in a very derogatory sense. But you'll also hear them, as I said, referred to as Islamic State, IS, ISIS, ISIL. It all kind of goes back to how you're translating that word of Al-Sham and, and what it exactly means, too. Because the Levant area, as I said, kind of spans across a large chunk of the Middle East, including Israel and down into Egypt as well. Now, as I'm sure most of you are familiar, ISIS or ISIL is widely known for being very brutal. They have videos of beheadings and other executions they put online. They destroy World Heritage Sites, massive human rights abuses, war crimes, ethnic cleansings. And in the last few years, they had become known for controlling territory. As I said, at their peak, they had a territory the size of Maine. And so they proclaimed themselves back in June of 2014 as a caliphate. And they started referring to themselves as the Islamic State. They believed that they were granted statehood, and they claimed 
religious, political, and military authority over all Muslims worldwide uh, as part of their caliphate movement. But they did not always start out this way. And in fact, they began many, many years ago. They have their roots in a movement back in 1999. So we're going back 20 years to a group called JTJ. And that stands for Jama'at al-Tawhid wal-Jihad. And so this was a group back in the early sorry, late 1990s, early 2000s that was very small. Not many people knew much about them. And so they actually formally joined with Al-Qaeda in 2004, and they became kind of a, a franchise of Al-Qaeda called AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then later they kind of converted and became ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq, in October of 2006. And this was part of a rebranding effort that the smaller franchise of Al-Qaeda did to emphasize that they were focusing on government, infrastructure, uh, controlling territory. They wanted to act as a quasi-state. And so they all kind of spawned out of these ideas very early on of wanting to be a state-like movement. And a lot of these ideas came from a man, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And so al-Zarqawi is considered the kind of the founder of ISIS. And let's take a minute and talk about who he is and where he came from. So al-Zarqawi was a Jordanian-born individual. He was imprisoned very early. He had a lot of different kind of problems as a young man. He had drug possession, sexual assault. So he was actually thrown in prison in Jordan for a while. And this is where we believe that he radicalized within prison. And so in the late 1980s, he actually left Jordan when he got out of prison and traveled to Afghanistan. And he was actually part of the Afghan-Soviet conflict or the Afghan-Soviet war. The Soviets had come in and occupied Afghanistan. Actually, this is a, a great topic for a whole other episode because it's because of its larger importance on the broader uh, war on terror. But this Soviet-Afghan conflict was the birthplace of a lot of different radicalized terrorists today, including Osama bin Laden. But al-Zarqawi actually fought in these conflicts as well. And so he kind of became radicalized here. As the Afghans succeeded in kicking out the Soviets, this was seen as largely justification for extremist Islamist beliefs. And so it was seen as, you know, Islam managed to kick out the secular atheists of the, this huge superpower. And so it justified violence in the name of religion. And so this helped radicalize him further. He got even further down that road into Salafism in the 1990s. He was arrested at this point for plots against the the Jordanian royal family, the Hashemites. And so he was believed to have been part of a a plot to overthrow them. So he got arrested again, thrown in prison. And then after this, after he kind of gets released from that, he actually meets bin Laden. And so despite some of the differences between al-Zarqawi and bin Laden, they started to become friends and they started to cooperate. Zarqawi was a little bit more focused locally. Bin Laden had at the time more global aspirations but they actually started to become friends. Now, this friendship lasted for a little while, and the the AQI group, the, the ISI group that he was a part of, that he was leading, started to become kind of a thorn in the side of Al-Qaeda, and bin Laden in particular. Uh, Zarqawi was seen as being much more focused on himself, becoming famous, uh, he was frequently disobeying orders from the larger group. He didn't seem to care about fostering any sort of relationships with local leaders. Uh, he alienated supporters with some of his more brutal tactics. He became increasingly violent. And so 
ISI started to become a, a real problem for Al-Qaeda kind of in the late 2000s, the first decade of, of, of the 21st century. And so in these early years, ISI was more of a training organization for the larger Al-Qaeda to, ex- to train some of their most extreme militants. But because of this, these problems they were having between al-Zarqawi and bin Laden, that friendship started to deteriorate. In February of 2014, they formally separated from Al-Qaeda and became their own group. And a few months after that, they declared a, a global caliphate, giving them what they claim was authority over not only all of these other groups, including Al-Qaeda, but Muslims around the world as a whole as well. Now, a lot of things kind of drove this split from Al-Qaeda. As I mentioned, there were a lot of disagreements between Zarqawi and bin Laden. Zarqawi was seen as being more focused on making himself famous than anything else. Uh, but Al-Qaeda also was, wasn't thrilled with the Islamic State's practices. The Islamic State had reintroduced crucifixion into some of their punishment tactics. They instituted slavery, slave markets, things like that. And so Al-Qaeda was not thrilled with these more barbaric tactics that they thought were, were too far. And so when they split, Al-Qaeda wasn't particularly upset about that either. Now, Zarqawi ultimately is killed. Uh, and so they're led by a man by the name of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi today. We actually held Baghdadi captive during the Iraq occupation years ago. But at the time, we deemed him unimportant and then ultimately released him. A few years later, he resurfaces as a major player in the war on terror and now leads the Islamic State. So that was probably a pretty big mistake on our part, especially because he was kind of able to use the Syrian civil war, which we've talked about on a previous podcast or previous episode, because he was able to use that Syrian civil conflict as a tool to expand and recruit. And so the Islamic State really kind of exploded at this time point. Now, the Islamic State is primarily located in Iraq and Syria, as you would suspect from the name. But over the years, they have gained pretty strong hold in other countries. They have a lot of supporters around the world. There's something as high as like 200,000 fighters that they have globally. At their peak, they had about 40,000 fighters locally and another 60,000 supporters in the area. But as I said, they became global very rapidly. Uh, Countries like Yemen, Indonesia, Somalia, Kenya... All of these countries started to see people pledge their allegiance to ISIS. And it's interesting because where they are actually tells you a lot about who they are. Because their connection to Iraq is particularly interesting. When the Iraqi army was defeated in 2003, and if you remember this was as a result of the U.S. invasion post 9-11. U.S. invaded, took out Saddam Hussein, took out the formal Iraqi army, disbanded the government and a lot of new laws became instituted. This was not particularly handled well. I don't want to get into a discussion of the Iraq war on this podcast episode today, but whether you think going in was good or bad, the way it was kind of handled post-invasion wasn't great. And the reason I say that is because when the Iraqi army was defeated in 2003, you suddenly had something like 400,000 people who were barred from government employment by these new laws, denied pensions, angry, but they were allowed to keep their guns, their military guns. And a lot of those early leaders of the Islamic State were former Iraqi army officials. In fact, almost every single top leader in ISIS is a former Iraqi army official, especially under Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi himself was was an Iraqi officer briefly. And so this is right here is partly why Some people around the world blame the United States for the rise of ISIS. Uh, You'll frequently hear uh, Obama accused of being 
you know, the instigator behind ISIS. Oh, he founded ISIS. You know, obviously that's that's an exaggeration, but the way the kind of post-war period was handled, especially with pulling troops out too soon, allowed ISIS the chance to flourish. Because again, we kind of took all of these people, knocked them out of government, made them angry, allowed them to keep their guns, and then once we pulled our troops out, we left a huge power vacuum. And so they moved into that area very rapidly and became leaders in the Islamic State. Now, the Islamic State, as I said, grew very rapidly, both globally and monetarily. They became the wealthiest terrorist group ever, worth somewhere around $2 billion. And most of that money came from things like oil sales. They they, uh, controlled a lot of oil wells in the area, but they also worked on the black market pretty extensively. They engaged in kidnappings for ransom. They collected taxes on the territory that they controlled. And this has spread to countries like Libya, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned, Yemen, Algeria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, Somalia, Indonesia. And at their peak, they actually controlled territory in, I believe, five different countries, Iraq, Syria, Egypt and the kind of Sinai Peninsula area, Afghanistan and Libya. Now, as I mentioned, the reason they're kind of in the news is because they've actually lost a lot of that territory. In fact, they pretty much lost all of it. And so now they're kind of operating mostly as an insurgent guerrilla style terrorist group. And this was accomplished because there there was something like at the peak over 60 countries around the world, either directly or indirectly waging war against them. And I use the word war there very specifically because again, at ISIS's peak, they were considered almost more of a militia group at times than true terrorists because of the the level of control that they had. But they have lost now virtually all the territory that they once had. They do have a couple, you know, tent cities and they're very nomadic and move around, but they don't control any real territory anymore. There's been a lot of signs of dissent and dissension among their ranks. They've had defections, they've had a lot of battlefield losses. There's a lot of tension there between kind of the, the local fighters and the foreign fighters. And so the tension between foreign fighters who are coming in from the outside and local fighters has been more and more pronounced. In particular, the local fighters feel the foreign fighters are not as committed to the cause. And so militarily, they've really been knocked back pretty extensively. Now, we're going to go ahead and take a quick 60-second commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk about the actual ideology of ISIS because their ideology is very unique in the world. They're one of the only ones, the only groups that actually has this specific ideology. It's actually what makes them different from Al-Qaeda as well. And we'll talk a little bit about some of their tactics and things that they did. So uh, with that, just bear with me for about a 60-second commercial break, and we'll be back on the other side to talk ISIS ideology. Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. Let's go ahead and dive right back in. We're going to start talking about the ideology of ISIS. As I mentioned before the break, the ideology of ISIS is actually a little bit unique in the world. There's no other group that's quite like it. Now, we all know that they want this kind of global caliphate to be established. They're trying to build an Islamic state that they can rule the world with. We know that they want to destroy anybody who disagrees with them, including, I should mention, other Muslims, uh, Shia terrorist groups. So they're very anti-Hezbollah because Hezbollah is is Shia-based. But in terms of their religious ideology, we actually see some differences. In particular, they are Sunni. They believe in a very literal and very strict interpretation. But they have a kind of special twist on this where they believe in something called apocalyptic Islam. 
or they're, a, they're an apocalyptic Islamist group. And that means that they're very focused on something called eschatology. Now, eschatology is a study of the end times. So you will hear this phrase used for people who study, say, the book of Revelation in, in Christianity or anybody who studies what's to come at the end of all time. And so they are very focused on this idea of the end times in Islam. In particular, they believe a couple things. So they believe that the arrival of what they call the Mahdi is imminent. The Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, that's essentially their version of the Messiah. And they believe what's going to happen is that the armies of what they say Rome, uh, and Rome could mean a lot of different things, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, the armies of Rome will meet the armies of Islam in northern Syria. And in particular, they believed in this town called Dabiq. And Dabiq, D-A-B-I-Q, was supposed to be kind of the downfall of, again, they use the word Rome to mean mostly the West. Um, and this was supposed to be Rome's Waterloo. And so ISIS, the whole reason they went into Syria in the first place was to get to Dabiq because they believed that the town of Dabiq was going to be the battle place for when the armies of Islam would take on the armies of Rome. And so they were basically sitting in Dabiq waiting for this to happen. And in fact, uh, if you go back you know, several years, if you guys remember Peter Kassig, he was an American, uh, they referred to him as a crusader, and they killed him, beheaded him, and they buried him in Dabiq for this precise reason. And they believe at this location, Rome will fall, the caliphate will expand, they'll sack Istanbul, uh, and then, the, then they believe in something called the anti-messiah. And the anti-messiah will arrive and drive them back and push them back into Jerusalem. And then the final showdown will take place in Jerusalem, where they actually believe, they do believe in Jesus. Jesus, they believe, is a, is a high prophet of some kind. Uh, I think the third most holy in all of Islam. And so they believe Jesus will come back and lead the Muslims to victory in Jerusalem. Interesting parallels there. All right, now let's back up for a second. So they use the word Rome to reference a lot of things. Obviously, Rome specifically refers to Italy, right? The actual country where Rome is located but probably has more meaning eschatologically, right, and symbolically to mean the West in general, not, not just Italy. They don't believe Italy is going to be the, you know, the one who faces off with them, but they believe the West would be. Now, Rome could also indicate specifically the United States. It also could refer to Catholicism or, in larger part, Christianity as a whole, because Rome being where the Vatican is located is kind of symbolic for them in terms of what Christianity is. And so they may see Rome as the forces of Christianity will meet the forces of Islam in northern Syria. I think that one's actually pretty likely, just from a sense of being very ideologically focused. They probably see the ideology of Islam, the ideology of Christianity as being opposed to one another and so that's probably quite likely there but it also just broadly means the west so the united states europe all of these countries like that now they also believe in something called 12th imam ideology they're 12th imamers and they believe essentially that there are 12 legitimate caliphs legitimate successors to muhammad uh, the caliph being the the leader of the caliphate. And so they believe there are 12 legitimate ones throughout history that succeed Muhammad, of which they believe Baghdadi is number eight. And so they believe that when that 12th one comes and that 12th one arrives, that will trigger the end time. So they actually believe it's coming up very, very rapidly. And one of the key differences here with ISIS ideology that dis distinguishes them from say Al-Qaeda or quite a few of these other Islamic terrorist groups in the region is that ISIS believes they are actually physically written into the Quran 
as a central player in bringing about the apocalypse. Now, I want to make sure you understood me there. ISIS believes they are the ones, their group is the group that will help bring about the apocalypse. And that distinguishes them from Al-Qaeda, as I said. Al-Qaeda believed a lot of the similar ideologies. They were also apocalyptic Islamists, but they thought, saw it as a much more down-the-road thing. They didn't, or even to this day, they don't really believe it's like happening in our lifetimes, but they see it as something where they will play a small part in a larger picture that will take years, decades, maybe centuries down the road. ISIS, though, believes it is coming now, and more than that, they believe they will be the ones to bring it about. Now, this ideology, if you're all familiar with, say, Iraq and the Ba'ath Party that ruled there, the ideology does seem to be at odds with some of the Iraqi officers that did become ISIS leaders, uh, because the Ba'ath Party in Iraq was actually largely secular. But there's a lot of methodology here that's very, very similar. Uh, you know, relying on fear to gain submission. And actually, by the end of Saddam Hussein's reign, while the regime itself was largely secular, they had started to incorporate a religious standpoint into their governance approach. And so we actually started to see a lot of overlap here, which is why a lot of Iraqi officers kind of gravitated into this group, because they liked the idea of a religious element to governments. Now, this apocalyptic Islam ideology, as I said, is fairly unique in the world. Most Islamist groups do believe some version of this belief system with, you know, the Mahdi returning and Rome and the the battles between, you know, the forces of Islam and the forces of the West. A lot of them do believe in the 12 caliphs, not all of them. Uh, some, some do, some don't. Uh, but they pretty much all do believe in that kind of final showdown with Jesus who will return. But the reason ISIS is specifically referred to as an apocalyptic Islamist group is because of the immediacy of their belief system. They believe this stuff is happening very soon, very rapidly, and that they are playing a very unique role in bringing it about. And so because of that, they're very difficult to, to fight, ideologically speaking, right? Because when you have a belief that the end of the world is coming and that you are a key player in that, that places a certain level of importance on your life that makes it very difficult to kind of counter their recruiting efforts. Because if you're recruiting somebody and say this person is a vulnerable individual who's looking for meaning in life, how much more meaning can you really get than being told that you'll be a key player in bringing about the end of time? Now, interestingly, as we have seen their influence in the region diminish, right? Losing territory, and actually they lost to Beak a year or so ago, their ideology has very fascinatingly changed. I actually find it kind of humorous, but they they believe so heavily in this Dabiq stuff, the town in Syria, that they actually named their, they have a formal magazine too, called Dabiq. When they lost Dabiq and were kicked out, and especially as they've been losing more and more territory, they have stopped emphasizing it. It's really interesting when you read some of their, their literature that they put out and some of their messaging, they have stopped mentioning Dabiq almost entirely. And they actually changed the name of their magazine. It's now called Rumia, which is Arabic for Rome. And so they're, they're focusing completely differently. They now focus much more on this battle with the West and completely ignoring all of the stuff they said in their early years about how important Dabiq was. They've completely downplayed it, which I find very humorous, but also indicative of, of what this organization really does believe. Now, as I mentioned, they do have this kind of magazine. I want to kind of talk a little about some of their methodology that they have used, because again, there's some interesting tidbits in here. We'll start with, with their magazine. They do operate a 
a formal magazine, glossy photographs, very professionally done. It looks like a real publication and everything. Uh, as I said, it's now called Rumia as of 26, I think late 2016. It's about two years ago. But they, this kind of movement into media is a part of a larger campaign for them. They're very adept on social media. They actually recruit people who have degrees in social media. They have their own like radio stations. They operate other forms of media, but their their media actually does make them fairly unique as well because they because because of the level of expertise they put into it. And by this I mean you look at some of like say al-Qaeda's videos. Most of al-Qaeda's videos they put out were Bin Laden sitting in a win you know, dark windowless room, gray walls, concrete walls, and just him talking for like an hour. ISIS, though, puts high production value into their videos. Explosions. I mean, they look almost more like movie trailers than anything. They're really playing on this idea of emotion and appealing to the youth through entertainment value. And it's really fascinating. And they've really been targeting younger and younger individuals as well. And they use all kinds of CGI. As I said, they do explosions. I mean, they, there was even a video a while back where they did the cliched thing of the explosion in the background and the fighters walking in slow motion away from the explosion. Pretty ridiculous stuff. There was another video where they had, uh, it was shown that they had manipulated it to make all of their fighters in the video look much larger than they are. It was a video of them parading some of their captives through the street for execution. And all of the fighters, you know, by comparison, were like seven feet tall. And it made themselves look more powerful and stronger in their videos. And so they're using all kinds of these CGI special effects to make themselves look stronger than they are, to up the entertainment value, to up the appeal to the youth. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, in addition to some of their, their publications and their media, they are fairly well known for their, their territorial control. Now, obviously, as I mentioned, the whole reason we're doing this episode is because they just lost their last bit of territory, but they actually did hold and control a lot of territory for quite a period of time. And this is partly because, again, that influence from a lot of these former Iraqi military officers, they brought over a lot of their expertise, networking, infrastructure. And so they actually ran a pseudo-government for a while in their territory. They had a capital, or I say a de facto capital of Raqqa, which is in kind of the north central portion of Iraq. They had a military council, a security council, intel council. They had a shura council, which is like a justice department. And so they actually operated very much like a government. And in fact, they, they actually would tax people. They taxed, especially minorities, both religious and ethnic minorities. They operated uh, markets. In they actually operated slave markets out of these things. And they extorted businesses. They dealt with ransom and kidnapping for ransom. In particular, they also took over and controlled a lot of oil fields. And so they extracted oil, fairly adept at doing this. And then they would sell the oil and make massive profit on this. There was a, a one, one estimate that I saw that said that they were drawing something like 44,000 barrels of oil per day from Syrian wells alone. And they were getting something in the neighborhood of $3 million per day from this oil. And so they were massively, massively wealthy. And as I said, kind of operating as a pseudo government of sorts in their territory. Now they did have a lot of captured weaponry. Most of their weaponry came from those stockpiles from Iraqi soldiers, again, from Saddam to Hussein and a lot of his Iraqi officers. A lot of their weaponry comes from there. And they engage in a lot of very, very violent things. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but they engaged in ethnic cleansing against minorities. They would kill people, especially on video, beheadings, public floggings. 
As I said, they had slave markets. They would use rape as a weapon, looting things, bank theft. Uh, they would raid archaeological sites and destroy a lot of these archaeological artifacts or sell them on the black market for money. We even saw them attempting to manufacture their own currency at one point. Again, this is part of their pseudo-state mantra. Now, interestingly, they have a fair amount of women as part of their recruiting efforts. They actually are unique in the, this way in that they directly recruit, or I should say recruited, women, both in their publications, but also kind of foreign women as well. We saw things like ISIS brides, which is a really terrible trend that we saw of young women, like 14, 15, who would leave their families and go join ISIS. And so they actually had this very direct recruitment of women that was a little bit unusual. And the reason they did this, if you look at some of their early years, they actually were not focused on women. But as they started to move more and more towards a state-like society and trying to, trying to operate their own state, it became very apparent that you need women to run a, a country. You need women to run a society. And so they they saw a shift towards specifically targeting female recruits. And this has actually been in the news recently. I actually did an episode on this of a young woman who joined ISIS and now wants to come back to the United States. But they also specifically recruit foreigners, which is really interesting. A lot of these groups are very tied to local grievances, and so it's hard to recruit foreigners into their ranks. But ISIS was widely successful. They had something like 100 different nations that they managed to reach and bring in something like twenty-five to 30,000 foreign fighters that traveled to join ISIS. But we've also seen them get engaged a little bit on the weapons of mass destruction front. Now, not in the sense of nuclear weapons, although we have seen rumors that they have tried to acquire nuclear technology, but they have been engaged on the chemical weapon front. They use mustard agents. They have attacked the Kurds multiple times with this. And so they're, they're kind of ex at their peak again a couple of years ago. They were really expanding into different types of weaponry as well. Further, they're also kind of unique in the sense that they have seen a shift away from kind of the large-scale fighting as they became more and more of a state. And we're actually going to see this as well now that they've kind of lost their, their territory and they move more into guerrilla fighting. We've seen a shift away from large-scale fighting and more about encouraging so-called lone wolf attacks. You know, telling people, radicalize, stay in your country and fight there. And so they encourage a lot of these small-scale attacks, like ones in Germany, in France in particular. There have been a couple there using amateurs, you know, amateur jihadists rather than kind of these hardened jihadists who grew up fighting, you know, in the Middle East. And so they, they've really been encouraging this, and they, they do it in a lot of their magazines and publications that they put out. They talk about, you know, staying in your home country, fighting the fight there, don't necessarily need to come to, to the Islamic State. And we're going to see more and more of that too going forward. Now, outside of that, we have seen uh, the United Nations get involved a little bit on this as well, accusing ISIS of crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes, human abuses, all kinds of, of pretty terrible things, particularly against uh, the religious and ethnic minority groups. So violence against the you know, Shia Muslims in their area, the Alawites, Assyrians, Chaldeans, uh, different forms of Christians. So the Syriac Christians and the Armenian Christians in particular, also religious minorities like the Yazidis and the Druzi. There's all kinds of these small minority groups that have been targeted and quite brutally slaughtered, persecuted. Uh, and a lot of times what they'll do is they, I'll give you an example here. From, so for Christians who live in the areas that, that were under ISIS control at one point, they were given four options. Those four options, the first one obviously is convert. They said, if you're willing to convert to Islam, we won't kill you. 
uh, it, you're welcome to flee the caliphate. Sometimes that, that option wasn't offered, but occasionally, at least formally, they would offer this option to, to flee and leave, uh, leave behind everything. They would offer an opportunity to pay what's called a religious tax. It's called the, the jizya. And if you didn't pay that, then they would kill you. And so that was option number four. So conversion, leaving, religious tax, or death. But the treatment of people under their rule was very, very brutal. And in particular, they, they even targeted children at times for recruiting or kidnapping. And they would basically indoctrinate the children into a lot of this as well. But this raises the question, and I kind of want to end it here, on where we're going forward from this. What's the next step? Uh, what should we expect going forward? And also, too, kind of where is Baghdadi? Because while we've taken a lot of this territory, we still haven't found him. And so... There's a couple of things here. So first, as I mentioned at the very beginning, in terms of geographic sense, the Islamic State is gone, right? They've pretty much eliminated any sort of territory they, they control. But this has meant that they have shifted towards a more insurgent-type movement. Now, ISIS is not the first group to ever use terrorism and control territory. Lots of groups have done this over the years. There are lots of communist groups in China after World War II, uh, FARC in Colombia, which is a, a kind of a Colombian far-left movement that operated for so long, also controlled territory. So ISIS was not unique in that sense, but they were very unique in the sense that they moved very rapidly through this process. But as their territory has collapsed, We've seen a lot of their power in kind of other areas collapse as well. Their propaganda, their media centers have, have really drastically shrunk. They have a lot fewer foreign fighters who are kind of flowing into their ranks as well. They have managed to kill a lot fewer people, which is great. Uh, we're seeing the number of deaths and attacks decline pretty steadily since its peak a few years back. But we are still seeing a lot of attacks. We're seeing suicide bombings. They maintain, they claim, eight branches in countries around the world. We believe they still have a fighting force of up to maybe as high as 30,000 people, which is not a huge change from what it was even a couple of years ago. So while they've lost territory, they still have a lot of members of their organization. And even though they've kind of scattered, the ISIS threat still does remain. Now, we can think of ISIS as kind of three fronts. So you have the kind of core group in Iraq and Syria that has lost a lot of territory and is operating now mainly as, as guerrilla fighters. But you also have these kind of eight districts that they control or operate in other regions. And then you also have what you might call a digital ISIS, the ones who use social media and other online platforms to, to operate. And so the big question going forward that we have to look at is, as that core ISIS in Iraq and Syria has been drastically knocked back, how are those other two elements going to react? And then a further question too is, is this permanent in Iraq and Syria or is there room for them to come back? And unfortunately, particularly in certain areas of Iraq, like say Mosul, which is still largely destroyed uh, more than a year after they, they had been freed from the Islamic State, there is still a vacuum of power in some of these areas that we could see ISIS start to rise up again. So while we are thrilled to see that they have been knocked back and all this territory has been taken, we cannot let our foot off the gas pedal on this because even despite what Donald Trump says, the group is not defeated. And as we have seen in, say, counterterrorism campaigns in other regions, 
it's almost impossible to fully eradicate terrorism, and especially considering how wealthy they are. Because as I mentioned, at their peak, they were bringing in something like $3 million a day. They had a yearly budget of something like a billion dollars. And we're not 100% sure where all that money went. And so there is still a lot of money in ISIS, even if they don't have territory anymore. And so they are likely to be able to continue to fund attacks both locally and abroad for quite some time. And since we don't actually know where al-Baghdadi is, he is still able to operate as their, as their leader. Now, his presence or absence is somewhat more irrelevant than it used to be, right? It, he doesn't have the same influence that he used to have, and his group will likely survive even if he gets captured. We saw this with al-Qaeda and bin Laden, right? We tracked bin Laden for years until we finally found him and, and got him. The U.S. Navy SEALs did that in 2011, but al-Qaeda still exists today, so it's quite likely ISIS is not tied up in like the leader. And so removing the leader likely is not going to end the group. Now, historically, there have been a few groups when removing a leader did work. Most of these groups, though, are very hierarchical structured, hierarchically structured. They're very much kind of a personality cult around a single individual. They're, more, they're younger than other groups. They don't have any sort of successor. And we've seen this on a few cases. Shining Path in Peru lost power for a long time. They're actually starting to regain power now, though. Ayum Shinrikyo in Japan, the Red Brigades in Italy. But we haven't seen this work to much success when it comes to religious groups, particularly Islamist groups. And so while our efforts to track down Baghdadi have probably limited his effectiveness as a leader, you know, forcing him underground, constantly on the run, you know, not being able to use certain forms of communication to inspire and organize, but the Islamist movement as a whole, both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, have been really kind of pushing towards more of a franchise mentality. Uh, Al-Qaeda now almost operates entirely as in a franchised form where you have Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Egypt, Al-Qaeda in etc., country after country. They all operate semi-autonomously to what you might call leaderless jihad. And essentially this, this tactic of being very loosely connected and allowing the followers to kind of attack independently or semi-independently of one another. And so you could have people who wage attacks in Baghdadi's name without ever really talking to him or hearing much about what he has to say or acting on, on his authority. And so we're seeing Al-Qaeda do this. We're seeing ISIS start to operate in this fashion as well. And so as we start to, I should say, as we continue to track him down, it should be mentioned that, that that should not be our top priority in the fight. It should be a priority, but finding him should just be one out of many, especially if capturing and killing him ends up turning him into a sort of martyr, which may spur more revenge killing and revenge seeking on the part of the organization. And so as we move forward, we're actively seeing ISIS transition into more of a network of sleeper cells in order to continue their reign of terror in a very different fashion. And so our efforts are going to have to change as well. Uh, we're not fighting them on the ground and hand-to-hand, -hand, not hand-to-hand, gun-to-gun -hand, um, you know, -gun combat like we would military versus military almost. We're going to be fighting them much more as guerrilla fighters and having to root them out of these kind of sleeper cells. And so going forward, our efforts are going to have to change. Uh, and we, we already are seeing them do that. I'm not saying we're not. We are absolutely doing that already. But the effort to fully eradicate ISIS is probably one that's going to take years to decades. Honestly, 
it may not happen in our lifetimes. It's something that's going to just take a very, very long time to do and may not be even possible. It's, as I said, it's almost impossible to eradicate terrorism. But we are making a lot of great progress and it is wonderful to see them losing territory, losing influence. We're freeing a lot of people. There's a lot of people who were under their rule, under this persecution, who are now free. But with that, I, we're kind of out of time. I know we've been a little bit long today, so I wanted to go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. I really appreciate that. As always, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter if you'd like to connect further. My Twitter handle is Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there. I hit that follow button. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any other. If you want to use Facebook instead, you can find me under J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I use to write fiction novels. I actually write a couple different novels. I have one that came out just a few months ago. actually started to deal with aspects of terrorism. It's going to be the first in a series. That's called Splintered State by J. Robert Kinney. So you can go check that out, paperback and Kindle. Now, if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast in any way, I would love to talk with you more about that possibility. So you can contact me. I have a Patreon account online, but you can also contact me directly through any of those other means. I would be happy to sit down with you and talk about the possibility of advertising or anything else. Uh, but with that, I think we are just about out of time. So this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. 